the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. This episode emerged purely from a recommendation from my coach, Rashad Ahmed, who suggested I interview another client of his, Lena Chowan. So, Trusting in the process, I went ahead and booked a time with her to record. I had no idea who Lena was. I had no idea about her story or anything about her life. So I'm not going to introduce Lena and rather let you as the listener find out who she is for yourself. So without much further ado, I give you episode 26. Reflection. Take a look in the mirror. I had quite a linear um, childhood in terms of it was you know within Asian communities especially Indian girls um, it was very much you well actually no it was even better than and linear because some of the girls who I grew up with it wasn't really encouraged to be that educated or go into a crazy profession and then the ones that were they, it was either a lawyer doctor or an accountant um, and I actually did accounting in university my father um, he actually qualified as one of the only two barristers in the UK in 1966. But he abandoned that to then set up a business and bring his whole family over because family and community were much more important to himself. And I think that has fed through um, to me, but in much only in these last several years. Um, so I went to university, I did a law, I started on a law degree, I realised I absolutely hated it, because I had this sort of glorified vision that it was you know we're in a courtroom with my wig and cloak and my uh covet uh, and it was just you know and when I was actually then studying the principles of taught I wanted to shoot myself out of boredom and I just thought this is just not me why am I doing it so I switched into finance um and only because it was just an easy switch just an easy switch and I realized I actually really liked it I didn't I didn't want to be pigeonholed but at the same time it was quite a I got I got figures I got uh, I enjoyed it um, and then I went into the banking route because I met some phenomenal friends who were very much into investment banking and they were almost sort of groomed that way and I had never heard of it um, then I started looking into the whole industry and reading books on the industry and I got lit up and it was very much, I'm very much an alpha type of character anyway. I was very much a tomboy. I like sport, like sports that were traditionally boys sports. Um, so it sort of suited my character to do that. And I'm quite, I was always been quite driven as well and competitive. So when I met these friends, it was just, it was sort of a perfect, I wouldn't say storm because it was wonderful. Um, but it just set me up and made me realise, wow, this is actually exciting for me. Um, so when I started the summer internships, it gives you a very nice, it was at an American investment bank. And it gives you a very nice introduction as to what life will be like. Um, you know, so say my name's Lena. 
So they would say, okay, uh, Miss Over, as in lean her over. And that was mm. the type of, you know, but it wasn't offensive to me at the time, right? Because you're not, you kind of just think you go with what you need to, you do what you need to do. Um, and you just impress them with your work, with your banter. You have to be really quick. You can't be, you know, if you're in any way miss a joke or miss something, then you're immediately pigeon down to being stupid. Um so there was nothing about, oh, my God, you can't do this. Oh, I'm a woman. You can't. If anything, my mindset was I need to prove myself 10 times as much because there are no women here. Um, mm. So it wasn't a tough, like, it's tough in one sense, but not, you know, because this, we didn't have all of this awareness. I didn't even think that this existed. It wasn't even a thing. Um, so I naturally just gravitated towards that and sort of embraced it and took it as a joke um, as opposed to anything else. Um, and then it does, it makes you really sharp and quick witted and you're on your feet, you're on, you know, flight mode the whole time because you just think, God, if I mess up, that's it, I'm done. You know, there's about a hundred other applicants that could replace me on this summer, de- summer internship desk. Um, and I actually got to enjoy it because it, it touched something in my character that it served me. Right. And um, and soon after, actually, when I graduated, my father passed away. So I became even more of that aggressive, angry. I was very angry and bitter. I didn't, you know, rather than thinking, oh, my God. Um, all right. How can I t- make this in my favor? How can, you know, I, I just thought, right, that's it. I need to fix the world now and I need to look after my mom and I need to just financially like make sure everyone's OK. So it's sort of again, it just fits to where my mindset was at the time. Um, so it was crazy. I mean, it was crazy good and crazy bad. You know, I had a lot of hormonal issues as well. I had a condition called endometriosis. So it means like you bleed heavily um, with your periods. And I used to sit on, say, like used to work 12 to 14 hour days. And I couldn't really get up because I was so scared that I had leaked through and you couldn't really talk about it. You couldn't even show it. So often I was the last person off the trading desk um, at 10 at night sometimes only because not because I had to be there till that time, but because I was so ashamed that, oh my God, what's happened underneath my seat. Um, Yeah. And things, you know, and and fiber, like I had, I held a nice hormonal gift. Um, So it wasn't, again, you just couldn't talk about it. You just kind of got on with it. But for me, that, that drove me more I went to the bathroom to cry numerous times um but that was always I cried and then it almost felt like my release you know then I went through the drinking culture I had um an eating disorder like all the stuff that happened but you couldn't see it on the day-to-day workings of the desk right it was always you get your job done you make money you make money you make revenue this is your revenue you need to hit um and so I didn't really process any of that you know I when you talk of courage, I didn't even think I was being courageous. I thought, right, I'm doing what I have to do. You take a risk, right. face a risk, and you just go forth. Um, and I thrived in that environment on a superficial level. Um, then I shifted to a broking firm, which was much, much nicer in terms of working hours. And, you know, there were some secretaries that I could, like there were women in the office. They might not have been on the desk or brokers, um, but they were, it was still a nicer environment. Um, but then it's the same thing, you know, you're on this, you're on this sort of um, wheel that you 
you don't even know that you're on. So you continue. And the whole thing that drives you forward is, okay, for me, I kept on using the fact that my dad's dead. So I need to financially provide for my mother and make sure she's looked after. And that's all that was running through my head. And we came from quite a poor background. So again, when you come from lack, you just think, oh, I don't want to ever feel like this. I don't want to ever lose my um, my house. I don't want my mom to ever feel that she doesn't have anything. So I went the other way around and just thought, right, this money is going to fix everything, going to fix everything. And it did for a while. You know, it just it it made me feel great, it made my mom feel protected. Um, you know, my sister was in bits. So sort of it 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 served its purpose. All of it served a massive purpose for me until it didn't. Um, so. I don't I think in terms of that is you do what you need to do to survive, whatever your mode or your perception of survival is. Right. You know, some people survive in terms of they actually don't have food to eat and they don't have clothes to wear and they don't have a home. Mine was, you know, my mine was coming from a place of lack where the family business has failed. We lost our house. We just there was lots of things I didn't want to relive again. And I didn't want ever want my mom to feel or be in that position again. So then you just do it, right? You don't think about it. You don't think about, am I being this way? You just do it. Mm. Wow. Oh, <laughs> it's really interesting because I went to public school. So when you're talking about the whole thing of Ms. Over and all of this, it's just like, it's just pure public school banter. And yeah. I'm sure most of the guys in the investment world. They were all. The, you, yeah. you know is so it's that kind of form which is great if you go to an all boys school and it's perfectly fine but then you you, you can't really continue that into yeah. It, yeah. Uh, a mixed environment and all of that um but yeah it's almost that thing of like this hyper male space and then at what cost are you kind of assimilating with that public school all boys ethos it's it's you know um well like I mean, I think it it created a heavy bias in my head um, and not a good one because not everyone's like that. It was just that environment. And again, they were a product of that environment as well. You know, some mm. of them were my mentors, ended up being mentors to me. So I cannot say that it was all negative experience. Um, but I also fully understand where they came. You know, when you, you get to a point and this was, you know, probably in my 30, like mid 30, I thought, actually, I understand why they are the way they are because I became the way I was because of the environment around me. You know, I became such mm. an aggressive person. My relationship suffered. Um, you know, I just became, I'm surprised I even attracted human human men because I was so <laughs> aggressive. And I just think to my husband, I, I, I even say to my husband now, I just, sometimes I, I, get, I definitely forgive myself for how I was, but I just think, wow, what made you stay? Um, because it was just such a toxic, like a toxic environment, a toxic, even, you know, I even used to wake up feeling not evil, but just wrong, you know, and I think that's what the, that's what the price I paid was. And you carry on feeling this lack of worth, this, this, you know, the worthiness never grows. In fact, it dissipates. The more money you make, the more powerful you become on a purely superficial level, completely all it does is succeed in concealing everything else. And so on one, on one aspect, you're looking like you're taking risk and reaping a reward, you know, and that's courage is built on that. Right. But courage is actually also discovered through failing, learning and growing. And I wasn't doing any of those until, mm. I, until I would say I got pregnant 
pregnant and it was pregnancies that completely rewired my the way I thought. I wanted to ask you at which point then, because you were saying you were on the kind of the hamster wheel just going round and round and round and round and it was it didn't really take courage because it was just what you were doing and, and it was, you know, you were succeeding in that. And I wanted to ask you then, uh, what then... I mean, I'm assuming that from what I'm hearing, there was a kind of a break. There was this world and then there was another world or there was this Lena and then there was another Lena. Yes. And at some point, I am almost certain that you had to take a huge, courageous leap of faith. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, it happened actually two times, not just when I became pregnant. My husband and I were separated because it had just become so toxic. And then I realized that I kept on blaming everyone else and looking at everyone externally. I never actually looked within me and acknowledged what was going on with myself. So I, I was introduced by a friend to Transcendental Meditation, TM. Um, and I went on a course and I finally started taking responsibility for my own actions and actually seeing me for who I was processing my father's death like years and years after because I'd just done anything to avoid it you know whether it be drinking going out you know working even harder uh, controlling it through um, controlling it through eating disorder but I'd never actually stood still and looked and actually observed the hell am I doing and it's that that was the catalyst for me to go on a journey of self-discovery almost which is still you know I, I feel it's a, a forever journey right it's always learning always growing that was definitely the start and I looked at myself I thought this is not who I am you know I've done what I was meant to do I've served the purpose of my mum's fine she doesn't even want all this stuff she doesn't even need all this stuff she just wants our time and our feeling and our us to be happy um yeah and I and I realized how self-destructive my behavior was to myself and it was actually then where all these different looking at this through a different lens and realizing that oh my god it's me it's me doing all of this and creating all of this and manifesting all of this so I had to then go on you know go on a journey of really learning well first seeing what what you know what I was or who I was and then trying to forgive myself for what I did or who I was and being kind to myself, which I couldn't do for many years. Um, so that was a catalyst. And then I think I had a, well, I think my, after my first, I lost my first pregnancy. Um, and then I had thought, my gosh, I'm being sent a message from above because I, I wasn't meant to get pregnant. My obs and gynae had already, already said that it's, 0% chance, 0.01% chance you will get pregnant. And I was fine with that. I didn't even question it. I just went along and I, I thought my husband will just accept this when I hadn't even had the conversation with him. Um, you know, I see it now as synchronicities going through in my life because all these things happen and then something else happens straight after to make my thought process change and realize that this is not who I am. This is not what I want to be. But kind of it had to happen several times. You know, it didn't just happen once and then I started my journey and then that was it. It happened again and again and again until I got to a point I'd had my, yeah, I'd, I'd gone, I'd had two miscarriages and two, two children. And after my second child, I, I had a really horrific pregnancy whereas I couldn't physically go to the office. Um, and then you actually get thinking that, what do I actually want? Why do I want to do this? Why am I here? I feel purposeless. This is not for me and again like you just go through these multitude of different thought processes and trying to 
you're you're I'm almost trying to fight my way out of it without actually being still enough to just sit and accept what's happening and then decide what to do or where to go. But there was nothing to guide me. I, I had no one around me. Everyone around me was as fierce as I was. Right? I didn't know how to be around feminine energy because I had all this angry masculine energy around me all the time. Um, and it was, I think, the kids starting nursery was just the hardest and the best thing that's ever happened to me because then I met another a surgeon who had set up an advocacy model for patients to help them along their health journey um, and I had a multitude of this having you know my mum's had cancer my dad has had a multitude of heart attacks and operations before he died um, so I was always used to dealing with doctors and and dealing and questioning everyone so it's sort of again it was just serendipity no I wouldn't even say serendipity I'd say synchronicity the fact that this exact person came into my life at that exact time and I had to look through life and I looked through life in it well I looked at life through a different lens and saw that I didn't have to do that I didn't have to be that way anymore and you know I I just started feeling differently behaving differently and then started surrounding myself with different people and then again you go inwards again so it's sort of I sort of jumped you know, from the external to the internal, where and each sort of chopped and changed along the way. And each one took, you know, there's an actual point where I thought, that's it, I'm giving up the finance career. Um, and I'm going all in the in the start and the health tech and startup world. And that for me, I think took the biggest courage because I knew nothing but finance. Um, I knew nothing but earning money and having money. And this was now learning from scratch, like I was a child and having no money and being okay with that and then trusting the fact that my husband would be okay with it and just trusting in the world that it's going to be okay don't worry you know if if for me that sense of lack and and having to always have this massive job was in my wiring for so many years so to abandon that and not feel lack and just go for it and take take a leap of faith for me was the hardest thing so how did you build up the courage to do it? It got to a point where I hated myself so much. Wow. I hated myself so much. And I was going back to, um, I was going back to eating disorders and it was, and I was a mother at that point. So I, oh my God. And I actually had a, you know, a moment where I was throwing up in the bathroom after lunch and I thought, what? am I doing? I'm doing the same that I did 26 years or 20 odd years ago. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? What is it serving? You know, you can't use the excuse of you, you know, it's because of your dad, you miss your dad, you're close to your dad. And that was my rhetoric, you know, and you can't use the excuse of you might, you can't, now you actually have to look like this is making you massively unhappy. You're trying to find different ways to control you control you not being overwhelmed by happiness and so as long as I had that element of control I was okay so that was and that was a big moment that I thought and my child actually my son actually saw me doing this and that was and he was like mommy what are you doing I'm like, oh my god you know this is his this is what he's going to remember from me he was I think he was two or three at the time three at the time um I thought I can't I have to do I just have to not do this and be okay with it and not have my kids think that this is what their mum is like Oof. Oh. okay I, I can I can understand <laughs> the, the, the kick my sons are four and two yeah like 
wow, they are the shiniest, <laughs> brightest, most perfectly polished mirror, you know. Oh. You see, now I'm curious because you've made this huge leap of faith, which has taken all this courage, sparked by your, your son and the eating disorder and everything, but doing it, now you've, I mean, if you look at it from the Joseph Campbell perspective, how I'm seeing it is like you've had this call to adventure. You know, it's like, okay, you've met this 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 doctor, this is project on the table, it makes sense, it's exciting, you know. Boom, you got it, you you've taken that step. I'm sure there was obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. <laughs> and I'm and and almost it's like I've if I look back on my life, it's like almost taking the the leap of faith at least as far as I'm concerned, I don't know whether it resonates with your stories that taking the leap of faith is almost, there's a, there's a, there's an excitement to it. It's fun. It's like, you know, you're starting on this new adventure and then boom, obstacle. And it's the obstacle that takes the courage and the next one and the next one and the next one. So, um, yeah, I'm curious. What were the kind of just the obstacles? It was nuts, actually. After the initial, it was almost like a love affair. You know, when you meet someone, you feel you've, or instantly fall in love and you have that whole newness and exciting feeling and then after a few months although it wasn't a few months it's literally been in three weeks and then you just think oh this is not as shiny and lovely as I thought it would be and how am I going to do this and it was this whole then the imposter kicks in and it, it basically keeps on saying you know repeating the same rhetoric that you're not good enough you're not going to all the feeling of worth right and that's what I found the constant challenge of realizing that I was worthy of doing it but I still I just pushed myself because I thought right well I need to do this I have to do this again it was that sense of urgency and the sense that but this time it had a purpose right it actually helped people with their health journey I and that also another catalyst for that was my mother-in-law was told she needed a back sp spinal surgery at the age of 72 and I just said but mum you you know how did this happen? You've had two steroid injections. Why are they suddenly gone to spinal surgery? Has the doctor explained anything to you? And she said, no, no, I'm just going to trust him. That's fine. And I said, no, 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 no. As you're 72 years old. You go under the knife for spinal surgery at that age. Has he told you the complications? Has he even, you know, explained the risk? And she said, no, no, it's fine. I said, mom, I need to speak to him. You can't just go. This is life changing surgery that if it goes wrong, so much can go wrong. And it was her traditional Indian mentality that just blindly trust and not even question, not even question the doctor or not even ask, look, what, what can go wrong? What can go right? Um, so I, after about 15 attempts of contacting this, it was an NHS um, surgeon and they are for the most part wonderful, but some of them like any profession, they're humans who are always going to get bad and good. And he could not wait to get me off the phone quick enough. Right. And he just said, well, what, you know, what do you need to know? I said, well, I'm a patient advocate. I want to know what the risk is. You haven't even explained anything to her. You've told her that, okay, because two injections didn't work, that that was the only, um, that was the only way possible now. And I said, so what's the risk? He said, oh, well, there's a 20% chance that she'll improve. And I said, can you just repeat that to me out loud and realize what you're saying? You're saying that there's an 80% chance that there's just going to be risk and nothing will happen. And she would have gone through invasive surgery at her age for that upside. And he said, no, no, but we, you know, it's a common operation. I said, I didn't ask if it was a common operation. I asked, did you hear what you just said? 
you're basically saying approximate 20 percent chance that this operation will work so she's 72 not 20 you know healing anything that can go wrong i said you're not even willing to talk to her or, or actually tell her this um and so what ended up is my my doctor friend who i was co-founding the company with she she said look you've got to get every single record you can and that took me another eight weeks eight weeks of getting data that she legally owned herself um, for me to actually get it so I could show it to someone to get second opinions. Um, and it found, and what was actually discovered was she didn't need surgery at all. She just needed a good physio and a back exerciser. So I found an, a physio on Gujarati. So I found a physio who spoke Gujarati and she had four sessions with him and got a back exerciser from Amazon for £14.99 and she's absolutely fine. I mean, and that to me is massive when it comes to, and this happened to my father as well and my mum when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. It's about 15, 20 years ago. And she was told that, oh, you can wait. It's fine. Just let your stage two. Why would they wait? And it's sort of, you know, with the older generations, particularly, they just agree with what, you know, they, they deem medical professionals to be gods. And I see you know, yes, many of them are phenomenal, but many they're they're human, so they will make mistakes, and they're not all nice either. Um, so it sort of became even more of a purpose for me to make sure that this succeeded, or that I got all of you know my banking clients into this. And the hurdles were that obviously, like I wanted a corporate route, and my co-founder wanted to go um, B to C, like direct to consumer. And I said, no one's going to pay separately for this. I think, you know, I do this for all my colleagues. I, I'm the girl, so I handle all the health issues. Again, that was another sort of bias. You know, and I did it. Though. I didn't even question it. I was like, okay, you know, I, I found out, but but it worked to my advantage because then I built up this amazing Rolodex of medical professionals um, who I could have very fierce conversations with and make sure that I got the outcome and the appointments. And so I kind of transferred that aggression. So I hadn't got rid of all my aggression and anger during this time. <laughs> I kind of, I tapered it down. I managed it slightly <laughs> better. Um, but then I kind of fed it into a purpose-driven mission. So, it, you know, for me, it kind of fed through to my values. You say, you mentioned adventure. Adventure is one of my core values. Like I have to feel that it's a sense of adventure. Um, and then... Obviously, when you're working with someone new, you've joined, I'm coming from a corporate world where everything's done for you. You don't have to do anything. You just make money, pick up the phone and make money. If anything goes wrong, there's always someone to phone to sort it out. So being a startup and, you know, you have to do everything yourself. So again, it was a really sharp wake up call for me that, oh my God, what have I actually done? I'm responsible for every single thing from the back to the front. Um, so that. You know, and then we disagreed on almost everything process-wise. So I was like, <laughs> now what? And this is like, you know, third week of brainstorming. And I was like, okay, this is just not going to end well. I already knew that, you know, when you know it in your head, but you just think, wow, at the same time, this is such a great product, you know, it's such a great service. Um, mm. And then another, again, like it's, I think we all fulfill roles that affect us personally, I feel, you know. And my gaki, my aunt, she was, she's like a second mother to me. So she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, which at the time we didn't knowingly know anyone who had it. No one talked about it in our communities and everyone just put it down to forgetfulness and that her age. So when my cousins, um, you know, when we were all discussing, they're like, no, she's fine. I said, no, she's not. I, 
you know, I need to know about this. So I went on this massive rabbit hole um, and everything that was available for families to learn about dementias was awful. Like it didn't give any pathway of care, like what to do logistically. How can you change your own language and your own behavior to help your loved one? What can you do? You know, what, what can help them? Because there is stuff. So I went on this whole rampage and I trained here and in the States because they're so much more progressive with Alzheimer's um, care there. And I brought back, I kind of created my own program. I partnered with a London University, UCL, with their dementia research. I was part of London Business School. So all these other little things happened to sort of propel this. And I set up on my own. Why is it that subcontinental people deify doctors? What is it? Do you, do, have you have you reflected on it? Yes. I mean, you must. Have. Yes, lot, many a time. I, I I ask everyone in my community, why do you think that they are God? What is it? And it's just the fact that one, because they don't. It's fear. It's all fear based, right? We fear what we don't understand. And if we've seen or heard or had an experience where a doctor has solved a problem that we don't understand, the immediate response. I mean, with any expert, but you know specifically with doctors they still see them as saving lives which they are you know so they're not wrong in how they're looking through this lens is not really incorrect but glorifying in them in such a way that they can do no wrong is almost it's embedded in them that you know from and that's ancestral pattern right that we you know if you if I think of my grandfather's my great-grandfather oh oh my god she's a doctor oh she's a doctor I was like like really but um, it was just, you know, and, and I look and like, why? Oh, because then they can help the family. And I said, but if you've got a problem with your knee, how's a doctor for, you know, ovarian cancer going to help someone who's got a bad knee, for instance? I said, and they, they just assume that doctors have this, you know, kind of unlimited knowledge of how the body works. And they don't. You know, if you're a generalist, you're a generalist. You have a kind of an understanding. And then you have to go to a specialist consultant. And they don't seem to, for them, a doctor's a doctor, you know, and that's it. Let's put them on a pedestal because they can help me live. And I, I just think that comes from um, when I think of my grandparents' time, one of the, my dad's brother had polio and he was unable to go to school from the age of five to 10. He was, he, he just had an awful life in that time and they couldn't afford medicine. So they said, well, if you train to be a doctor or a pharmacist, well, doctors first, then pharmacists, um, then we wouldn't have had to go through this. So I think from that standpoint, that may have played a massive part in how that generation felt about it. Mm. But it's still, I mean, it doesn't make sense to that. They can't, they just said, oh, you don't understand. I was like, so make me understand. Like, I'd love to understand. It's really interesting. Yeah. My father's English, like, trace our family back to well, 1066 the battle of hastings oh, really? and then before, before that to the vikings so it's it's quite cool that's incredible i can, tra I can trace my male line back to the year 738 how did you do that did you use that using a um using an app as in well, my father got it. My father did a load of research, and he'd go to the British Library and all the archives and everything, the parish documents and this and the other. And he got back to seven generations, and I had done the other side of how the how the Duttons came to the United Kingdom, and you found that they were the first Dutton was the nephew of William the Conqueror. 
So that there you can from so from there back is to the Vikings and whatever you just follow the kind of ruling line which is kind of well recorded. Then you've got to find at which point does the kind of going backwards meet the going down, and that was a little bit more tricky. Um, but then through it was ancestry dot com, mm. I found two or three family trees which linked back to like my great 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 grandfather. So I contacted them and kind of tried to checked and verified and whatever, and through a little bit of kind of doing the right work and speaking to the right people and kind of long lost cousins or whatever, I could link it back. So it's really interesting. And so then, so I kind of put the seal on what my father started, which is quite nice. Incredible. How did it make you feel when you discovered all that? Well, we you, we kind of knew that we were Viking yeah. somehow because I mean, even the family. Chris, I don't know if you can see it. Oh, yes, it's like, yeah. It's quite Viking-esque. Yeah, yeah. And so you knew that we came from the Vikings somehow. Um, but when you... Yeah, to to link it... Plus, I think I'd always been curious about it because my father had been curious about it. So it was like he had done research and he'd... So he would be like... And plus my... My father became Muslim. So it's like, I'm Abdullah, he's Yasin, and then his father's Cyril. Oh. And his, right? And yeah. his father's Horace, and then Leonard, and then Samuel, and then Samuel, and then John. And then you've got all of these names. And it was really interesting because it's like, okay, there's a, there's a genetic inheritance that I've received. Yeah. But then my father's made this change. You know, and so that I've, and it was before I was born, before you got married. So my whole life or my whole childhood, you know, everything that I experienced was in a kind of through the filter of Islam. Yes. In some shape or form, apart from my grandmother's house. Because <laughs> she was, it was, so it, it was just, it was really, uh, it was fascinating. Yeah. Because when you, you realize that there's, you know, your, your, your genetic, you know what i guess is nature versus nurture so you've got a nature in you and you've got and you're nurtured in a certain way and so it, it was just kind of like another um way marker you could say if kind of understanding a little bit more about who i am yeah. and where i come from but it was really cool i mean and I'm super proud. I've, after finding that out, like you're like yes, yeah, I, had, I, had, I am. Yeah, I, well, I had my I had my friend who's a jeweler make this ring for me, and and, and I'm very proud of it, you know. And I'm like, everyone always asks me, "What's that ring?" I'm like, ah, it's, my <laughs> coat of arms. it's like, yeah, our ancestral home has long been sold, and and all the wealth had long been <laughs> dissipated, but one of my ancestors did breed the first thoroughbred. So the first thoroughbred horse was one of our. Oh my god! Well, well, I, I, I still, I, I like to paint it in yeah. such a cool light. It, he supplied the mares. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the, the real story. deal was it's still a good story. Yeah, the Earl of Godolphin. He brought the horse. He brought the the male stallions from I think it was Yemen. Two from Yemen and one from Oman. And then he bred them with my ancestors' mares. But still, it's this. <laughs> That's a very cool story. I got it. Mm. Okay, so now, so you, so this first endeavor was 
you say it was a failure and then you started well i don't want to say failure that's the wrong word but you 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 transitioned again and you went and did your own thing yeah, by yeah. yourself um i did a similar setup but just for corporates um, which i knew i already had the ability to walk in to higher level um you know hr because i knew all the senior people within the banks and the hedge funds um so i didn't really have to go through a procurement process Instead, I was just providing the service in a very different way, um, solving health problems and speaking in a very different way. And just life was life was just different and it did feel calmer. And rather than getting aggressive with other men, I just got really aggressive with doctors and consultants and people who didn't give the best patient journey. Um, and it did really well. It did really, really well. And I only just sold um, the outstanding contracts to insurer last year um, because I, again, I found myself going on that rat, rat sort of that wheel. And I wasn't loving. I wasn't feeling joy. And I remember even when I started seeing Richard, because like, oh, you, I don't know what you do. And I was like, OK. And and when I said to him, I sold it, he goes, well, that doesn't surprise me because you never talked about it. You never felt joy. You never intentionally grew it. You just stuck with the clients you had. Um, you know, and in a way, it was great because I had to learn the ropes, right? You can't just go into it and, oh, well, I know this and that's it. Um, so for me, it was the amount I learned was, for me, the most valuable thing. The amount of workshops I delivered, like public speaking, lots of things that I would never have ever done or had the chance opportunity to do and learn I I got from this but inherently I didn't feel joy from it like I felt joy from giving workshops being with people like changing thought processes looking at thought processes in a different way um but I never felt like this is right I love the learning part I realized that but I'm not loving this particular business you know I'm just kind of servicing proverbial rich kid like so to speak and I mean this with a the bias hat on um I'm not really helping anyone who really, really needs it, you know? So then came along, well, whilst at the same time I was in, I was building the dementia app and that I think I put so much passion into this um, because I knew actually people who really did need it and it was life-changing. It was absolutely life-changing to get our communities. Even I was giving lots of talks to our, all the BAME communities here because they just didn't want to talk about it. You know, if it was mental, they never even heard, they never actually understood what dementia was. So it was kind of creating layers of awareness at different levels with different communities and teaching them how they can help each other and loved ones. And what we, you know, Alzheimer's is almost like another language to learn how you, how you communicate with your loved ones um so that for me took on a much bigger meaning and purpose but again it just I allowed it to completely consume me and given that I had two kids that I was trying to work around as well um I reached a per I wouldn't even say burnout I I don't even know that I just thought I felt so low again and I felt right I'm not happy again so what am I doing wrong I need to kind of examine this within me I'm clearly not value you know um, living what I need through what I need to be doing um, so then I started mentoring teenagers in artificial intelligence because I loved technology I love technology and um, yeah and that was another fest because I'm you're talking from to a person who I refused to shift from a Blackberry to an iPhone I was one of the last adopters of an iPhone um, and I was just resisting 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 and then the moment I sort of got thrown into technology I was like 
why was I doing all this time? Like, why? And now I can't gone flip the other way and I'm an early adopter for everything. Um, so being with teenagers who think very differently and are very exciting and very just, they don't seem to have limits on their thought processes, right? They don't already have that inbuilt kind of uh, level of, well, I can't do this. Like, well, I can do this. So how do we do it? And we created an app for to, um, to help people affected with domestic violence. And that's again in the lower socioeconomic groups um, in the BAME community. So that's being tested with two London councils. And I got it funded by uh, one of my legal clients, an international law firm, because it sits very well in ESG and it will, and they know me very well. So they know that I will make it an outcome, right? There'll be a good outcome out of it. Um, yeah, so that sort of then led me into ESG. And I started helping companies with their policies on, um, environmental social governance, which just means making things sustainable um, in a nice way, making sure your employees are doing things for others, not just for themselves, you know, in the most basic context and trying to create like circular economy. So that's sort of now where this journey has gone. It's crazy. Like you didn't, I wouldn't have thought it in a million years. <laughs> I know exactly why Rashad told me to interview you. It just happened just there. I was just like, okay. My my journey has just been so mad. Like I can't. Even, sometimes I don't even. I, I sit and I think like, oh, what? I'm doing a podcast now. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I mean, five years ago, six years ago, I was flying around Africa selling armored vehicles and military equipment and stuff. It's just, and then like somebody was asking because the last guy I interviewed fascinating man from san francisco he's he's a uh like a, a, a jiu-jitsu master but he interviewed he some he was saying to me at the beginning he was like one of the patterns he's noticed in his life is that he's always made re bonds and built relationships with people before they become legends in whatever their field is and it's just this kind of thing that he has and it was like his thing was hip-hop and he was in san francisco he grew up in san francisco and in the so in his like early late teens you know he was friends with tupac and easy e and all of these people and they all and they all went on to become like these superstars and he kept uh relationships with them you know so even tupac he was saying that even when he became like an absolute superstar he was never envious of his fame or his fortune or the women or this that and the other but he was envious of his intellect. And he said that Tupac was always reading more. Yes. And he would tell him like, have you read this book? And he's like, no. And he was always trying to catch up with how much Tupac was reading. Really interesting. Oh. And I mean, that was Easy e and Wu-Tang, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan. And he was saying that even like going backstage at Wu-Tang, he said like, he was joking. He was saying to me, he was like, you'd think it was just like hookers and cocaine and this that, and the other. He's like, it's not like that. What were they doing? Uh -huh. Reading the stoic philosophies or something? <laughs> exact, exactly that. That he said there's like vegan burgers and really? having discussions about stoic philosophy and all of this stuff. I mean, this guy, his podcast is about stoic resilience. So he's kind of gone from hip hop through chess to stoic resilience. Like, I mean, he's in his early fifties and it's absolutely fascinating man. So fascinating, and he's telling me his journey, and I'm like. Wow, 
And he's like, it's, it's mad, isn't it? It's, it's insane. And I'm like, it just, for me, it's pure sanity because it's just speaking to, to my journey and like how I've just, I guess in a way, just followed my curiosity. Yes. And what and whatever's in front of me is like, I mean, you do get sucked into, you know, you're doing something and, and you're sucked into it and you get sucked into that wheel. But at some point there's this, you know, you get a knock on the head. Yeah. And you're like, okay, next. And you go through a little bit of a depression or whatever and look for the next adventure and you find it. And then it's like, whoa, and then that thing yeah. collapses and the next one and the next thing collapses the next thing. And then you're married and then you got a kid and you got another kid. And it's just like, okay, podcast, whoa, let's do it. <laughs> Is that how yours unfolded? Like what was the, what was the mindset for this? My podcast. Okay, so I had been wanting to do a podcast for a while i don't know why i can't i can't even explain where the idea came from for a podcast i just i wanted a podcast well actually okay rashad would tell you it's because i want recognition okay yeah that's fair um, enough as well <laughs> yeah. yeah so i think there so i wanted to just voice something and i didn't know what and i kept pitching these ideas to my wife you know it's like ah oh, i could do a podcast on this and she's like what, what's wrong with you man like nothing really kind of um kind of locked in anyway this business that i was doing completely collapsed um and then a, a week later i got covid and i got covid hard man like and i was i just remember lying in the bed like in isolation in this room by myself and I, and, I, and now i'm like st struggling to breathe and i'm just like Hey, you know okay and i'd just been like the whole time since the first day of lockdown i haven't stayed in my house once i never wear a mask i was my kind of resistance um you were saying kind of like resisting the iphone is like that was my thing i was like no i'm not going to be locked down you can't tell me what to do uh, i'm not going to wear a mask uh. and i think it was the patan that yeah. the patan side coming through <laughs> but yeah, and I, I, I guess it was like an anger. And every time you saw someone wearing a mask, it was like this anger towards them. And you're going to spray me with sanitizer going into the malls. Anger. Ah. There was a lot of anger in me. And yeah, I got COVID and, and, and I had to stop and I had to just be still. And I'm like struggling to breathe and I'm lying there thinking like, oh no, oh no, like, you know, I've been talking so much crap about all of this and now suddenly you're just seeing all the images of the people in ICU and all of the people not being able to breathe and all the people dying and hazmat suits and what, what. And the fear just starts building. And now you're strugg you're already struggling to breathe. So you're just trying to breathe consciously just to get oxygen in. And then you're starting to panic. Yeah. And then the panic hits and then you can't breathe even more because now you're panicking. And I just remember like thinking... You know, I don't want to die. And then I was asking myself, well, why don't you want to die? Well, what's wrong? You're going to you're going to die anyway. Yeah. It's like, so you but you don't want to die now. So well, why don't you want to die now? What is it? You know, and then you think, oh, you know, my wife, my kids, my this, that, and that. And I'm like, no, that's all an excuse. Yeah. yeah. And then why don't you want to die? And it was like in that reflection, it was like, okay, because I'm not fulfilling my potential. Yes. I'm not doing I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be yes. doing. Yes. Or at least I'm not on a journey towards what I'm supposed to be doing. And so I started this podcast and it was my, it was the start of a journey 
inwardly and outwardly of well the first eight episodes or first seven or eight episodes they all kind of without forcing it in any direction the moral of each one of them was you've got to know yourself and I'm like okay and then and then I remember the episode seven I was in Barcelona interviewing a screenwriter friend of mine and and I said okay so what's your call to action for whoever's listening and he's like you've got to know yourself I'm like everyone's already said that I don't want you to, to tell me the same thing like I'm bored of that yeah. you know it's like, and he's like but you have to I'm like, okay, but how do you do it? Like, how do I know myself? Like, I can, I'm reading all these books. I'm, I'm traveling. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm trying to work on myself. I'm trying to be a better husband, father, family member, member of society, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm still angry. <laughs> <laughs> clearly not serving me. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and so the, the uh, but then at that point, the podcast did take a little bit of a turn. And then the next person I interviewed kind of really spun it round because he asked me, so, so then why are you doing the podcast? And he asked me, he's like, what are you looking for? What are you searching for? And then that was like sparked something in my head. It's like, I don't know. I haven't even thought about it. I just wanted to do it. Yeah. And so from that point, there has been a, a, a change and then I even re changed the name and I rebranded the podcast. And that's kind of been along my, alongside my journey with Rashad. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because I'm seeing, <laughs> I'm just seeing so many of my reflections in you. It's, it's really, it's really cool. And, I, and it's kind of like, as I've come through the conversation, I'm like, I was really angry. I was just really angry and I don't even know what or who. Um, but I guess maybe that's my ancestral patterning. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, whether you want to continue it or whether you don't. Yeah, but it serves you as well. And it's a sense of pride as well for you. Oh, for sure, yeah. I knew quite a lot but I was at university. And they're all very, you know, very proud men, very, I live and buy by, die by my sword. And that's ingrained in them, right? And they're huge, powerful guys. So I can imagine, well, you know, just from that small observation, that that would perhaps sit in a way with you as well. 100%. I mean, what is pride, right? What What is pride? It's an illusion, right? Yeah. What is honour? And and honor can be interpreted in many different ways, you know. Even I've, I've been learning Urdu because I want to kind of reconnect with my mother's lineage a little bit more. And there was one passage, and it was talking about Shirafat, and I was translating Shirafat as nobility, and the teacher was like, "No, it's not nobility; it's honor." And no, I was translating it as honor, and she was saying, "No, it's nobility." And we were having this kind of discussion, but it's it's not either or; it's both, you know. But it's how do you define you can take it in this way or that way or that way it's like so uh yeah language that's i, I want to do an episode on language i've always thought urdu is a very beautiful poetic language like just mm. listen to and even the meaning behind some of you know, can you understand it? i understand parts because i have some friends who speak urdu and i just think it's like they're it's like they're reciting poetry when they speak to me whereas when i hear like i i speak gujarati but i find it quite a um, we call it like gachu, like quite a harsh, it's not a beautiful language, right? It's not poetic, mm. it's not, it's functional. I find it much functional, yeah. whereas Urdu is like a song for me, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I, I, the, I mean, it, literally, my my journey with Urdu started with the poetry, because it's just, it's a language that has, I think, thirty or thirty-five words for love, and and each one is slightly different. It has a slightly different nuance. It's like one's more towards affection and one's more towards like somebody that you love as a lover, someone's you love as a father. You know, so each of the words has a slightly different uh, connotation. And then you've got like ishk, which is this kind of overwhelming love. And so it's, yeah. 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 And so you've got all of these different, and, and you can, and what I found, because I don't speak Udu. I mean, I, I my, my, my grandparents spoke to us in Udu when we were kids. So there's like some kind of memory of the sound and I can differentiate the words, but I don't understand them. Um, but then in kind of studying the poetry, you realize that often the words aren't even that complex. It's like, look at my face, whose reflection do you see? And then the, the, the you know, the, the song or the poem goes on and none of the words are complex, just they've been put together in such a beautiful way that they paint this fantastic picture and then it just sounds beautiful as well (laughs) uh, I went to Rashad's house for dinner two nights ago and he was saying that his father-in-law spoke Farsi and he used to recite the parts of Rumi in the in Farsi in the original form to him and I was like wow man that's so beautiful because my father again my father white Englishman he used to like have these interactions with my with with his father-in-law, my grandfather, where they'd 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 recite like the Urdu poetry to each That's other. That's beautiful. My God, a nice example to have as well. Coming back to this thing of of courage, I want to ask you, how do would how do you how would you define courage? <laughs> I would say by acknowledging your own fears and imagining how you would feel or what you would action if you were less fearful. And our journey is all about experimentation. So that's what I would call courage. And, you know, it's another more eloquent way of saying you just go for it and get on with it. And you don't actually look back. You just look forward and you do it. So sort of if it's, you know, I challenge conventional wisdom, I try, I always try something new. I, I don't care that if people are going to think I'm an idiot for doing that. I'm like, well, that's on you. You know, your perception of me is not my issue. Um, and that's what I think. That's the way you create possibilities. Mm, interesting. And then something somebody said to me the other day, they were saying that the courage that's needed for this time is not the courage to go fight on the battlefield. No, it's a mental. But it's, mental. The, it's the courage to go and, and fight inward. Yes, yeah. We have to confront our internal challenges, right? Um, right now, what I see many people doing is avoiding them and not being courageous because it's easy. It's easy. What do you mean by that? So, so if we're not confronting what's going on in our headspace i'd say we're on this journey of we're inwardly looking we're we're looking inside ourselves it's hard work it's not easy stuff it's not easy work to do it's not work you particularly like to face sometimes and it's unpleasant sometimes it's wonderful it's a wonderful 
incredible journey, but it takes time, it takes effort, it takes desire to want to discover oneself and want to better oneself in different way. It's harder work, right? Whereas we're not ever taught to do that. Now, when you think of children, children generally are not taught to confront challenges. They're taught to avoid risk, avoid challenge. And I think that's what happened when, when we're now in this fear-based, or less so now, but especially over the last two years when it's been very fear-based, right? And, you know, I've had COVID twice, I've long COVID. I had a very extreme fear for a while of doing anything, you know, because I, I had a similar situation. Yeah, I couldn't breathe properly. I still can't. Um, but it's not our... And if I just kept on thinking like that, many people I know are like this and then they stay like this and they don't confront it. They don't think, well, what else can I do? What else? What's next? What can we do to maybe make this better? That will all make mean more work, more this, more that. Whereas, you know, we have the ability. We all have the ability to change our circumstance. And I think the courage, courage makes you do that or the lack of courage makes you avoid it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Nomos podcast. After recording this episode, I knew exactly why Rashad had suggested interviewing Lena. And through our conversation, it became more apparent to me that what I was seeing in Lena was actually a reflection of myself. And it emerged later that the same process had happened on the other side of the recording, which was really cool to hear. And it all reminded me of a Kawali that I was listening to that I mentioned indirectly in the conversation, which is which translates as look at my face, whose reflection do you see? It's a beautiful Kawali. I've put a link in the episode description onto a brief something that I wrote on the Kawali. And at the bottom, I've embedded the video of the koali it's beautiful have a listen to it and you'll understand what i'm talking about thank you once again for listening and i'll be back soon with another episode of the new nomos podcast thank you